is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. What abuse occurred in Colorado at the hands of priests? A clearer picture is likely to emerge with an agreement that will be announced later this morning. This agreement is between the state attorney general and the Catholic Church. CPR's justice reporter Allison Sherry broke this story. She's on the phone ahead of a press conference where we'll get even more details. Hi, Allison. Good morning, Ryan. So this comes at a time of global reckoning for the Catholic Church, but help us understand how Colorado, under Attorney General Phil Weiser, is going to proceed with its probe. Well, the details are just starting to come out. You know, we had some details last night, and um, we're still gathering some this morning, and I think that in 50 minutes we're going to know a lot more. But right now, there's going to be an independent review of past allegations of sexual abuse by priests. I have been told, and and the clarification is this is a third-party review. This is not going to be conducted by the Attorney General's office. I don't know who's going to be conducting that. I'm sure we're going to find that out. All right. And might it result in criminal charges or what would what would the end look like? You know, I I don't know. I think when I was going back and forth with some sources last night on what this all meant, there was a uh, there was a sharp clarification that this is a review and not an investigation. Um, So, you know, I think without a subpoena, it's not an investigation. This is in cooperation with the Catholic Church. The archbishop is going to be standing next to Colorado's top lawyer in 50 minutes announcing this. So this is a cooperative agreement. Um, and, you know, I don't know what the outcome will be if that would, would if that would lead to criminal charges. As we say, the story is unfolding. Uh, Allison, what can you say about possible support for victims? Is the state going to play a role there, do you think? Yes, there are two other parts of this announcement today. One is that there's going to be a compensation fund for people with credible claims of sexual abuse, some reparations for them. And the second is that there's going to be a victim's assistance program. And and that program will simply sort of help victims file paperwork to get reparations and also provide some long-term support and counseling. Reparations, meaning that there might be some money for victims. Yeah, there will be money for victims. I'm not sure where that money is going to come from. If it's coming from the church, if it's coming from the state's victim compensation fund, well, I'm sure we'll find that out in an hour. But um, there will be money available for victims with the credible claims. Okay, so members of SNAP, the Survivors Network of Those Abused by Priests, had been asking for the state to get involved for some time. Uh, They simply don't trust the church to investigate itself. I don't trust that the fox can guard the hen house. That is the voice of Jeb Barrett. He's head of SNAP Denver, speaking with me last September. Uh, Allison, this makes me think that the previous attorney general, Cynthia Kaufman, was probably working on this, too. This probably goes back before the, the current administration. Yes. And, you know, we asked her about this last year, um, and she was pretty she was pretty, uh, you know, quiet and mum about what they were working on, saying she didn't know what jurisdictional rules there were in Colorado to investigate the church. Um, but, but the fact that um, she's going to be at the press conference today with the archbishop and with the new attorney general, Phil Weiser, says that this was definitely probably, you know, ongoing under her watch. Also, we need to point out that Phil Weiser, the attorney general, just took office six weeks ago. Yep. So it's highly unlikely that he was able to pull this all together in six weeks with no help from the you know, previous attorney general. Yeah, it's likely that this was percolating. A high-ranking exactly. ch- church official told Colorado Matters a while back that they know of no cases of abuse of minors 
after 2002 in Colorado. I suppose this probe will reveal if that's the case or if there are more modern cases. I think victims definitely hope so. And I think, um, you know, if I talk to the attorney general about this, I think he would hope that's true. Um, You know, I think the skepticism that I have to ring here is that without subpoenas and without an independent investigation, I think there are some people who would say, victims advocates and others who would say, the church gets to choose how it participates in independent reviews. And so that's that's going to have limitations. I think the huge question for Attorney General Weiser is what's going to happen if they get into some sort of conflict? You know, he's trying to get information. The church resists that. I mean, is this whole thing off? Does he then move to the subpoena investiga- investigative stage? You know, those are sort of the questions that we need to ask, that we need to ask here yeah. when, this, when we get more details. I remember members of SNAP, again, that Survivors Network, calling very specifically for a grand jury, which has happened in other states. So uh, we'll know Absolutely. more. We'll know more soon. Allison Sherry, thanks to you. Thank you very much, Ryan. She is CPR's justice reporter. CPR News is also breaking another big story today, a controversial plan to give IV drug users a safe, supervised place to inject is on hold, at least for this year. A key lawmaker says she will not introduce a bill that would have cleared the way for a pilot program in Denver. It could have potentially been the country's first supervised injection facility. We looked into what happened to the bill starting inside the Capitol with public affairs reporter Benta Berkland. Democratic Senator Brittany Pedersen of Lakewood has championed the issue of opioid addiction. Her mother used drugs for more than 30 years. Pedersen advocates for a variety of approaches for dealing with addiction. I would be the last person in the world who would ever bring a bill that would increase use of the drug that devastated my mom's life, my childhood. Over the last two years, there have been efforts at the state and city level to set up a site where users can inject under medical supervision. But Pedersen says the closer it was to reality, the louder critics became, especially on the right. She was hoping to introduce a bill this session, but says she's made the tough decision not to, because even in a legislature controlled by her own party, she doesn't have the vote. I lost hope day by day as I continued to be a political target. I didn't have the support at the Capitol to ensure that we actually built a level of understanding with members. This has become the bright and shiny object to try to scare people, even though it's a bipartisan bill. There needs to be a thousand different things that need to be looked at to try to tackle this epidemic. That's Republican Senator Kevin Priola of Henderson. He would have been the co-sponsor. He supports making it easier to dispose of drugs safely, stronger warning labels, and making it harder to doctor shop. He saw a safe injection site as another tool. As a pro-life Catholic, I'm passionate about doing unto others and treating people with dignity and respect and, and promoting life. But other Republicans were never sold on the idea, saying it would make the problem worse. GOP consultant Dick Wadhams credits his party's loud opposition for stopping the legislation before it even started. A few weeks ago, that might have sailed through the legislature onto the governor's desk. But I think several Democrats are having second thoughts now about uh, the consequences of voting for that legislation. I'm Benta Berkland at the state capitol. I'm John Daly in Denver, where conservative talk radio played an active role in building opposition to the safe injection site pilot program. 
KNUS talk show host Peter Boyles visited Vancouver to see the impact of a facility there. He argued a site in Denver would make it a destination for drug use. This is so dangerous and so frightening, and the cost is so expensive. The station's website prominently featured a campaign to derail a potential Denver program. Boyles later told reporters the sites were popping up around Canada. When they opened it, one site in 2003, now there's six. Every, does that mean they saved all of those lives? Of course not. Both sides in this debate can point to research backing their views, but the science is still developing. Studies have suggested that these sites do reduce overdose deaths in the near vicinity and do not increase overall drug use and crime. That's a key argument from drug prevention advocate Lisa Rayville. We do not want to push forward with the status quo. And people in our communities are dying. And not only are they dying of overdoses, they're dying of public overdoses. Last fall, Denver City Council approved a pilot program for two years. In response, Colorado's U.S. attorney and its DEA field office warned the site would be illegal under federal law. Last week, Mayor Michael Hancock said the city should focus on other measures for now. It doesn't look like the state's going to do anything with it this session. Um, and then once you get over that hurdle, you also recognize you got a very serious federal hurdle uh, to get over. So at this point in time, I don't see it. It's a mute issue in the city of Denver. Some of those hit hardest by the opioid epidemic say they're not giving up. At an event earlier this month to advocate for a safe injection site, Helen Alvilar told reporters about her son, Leo. He was 34, a father of two. He died of an accidental drug overdose on a friend's bathroom floor. What were the last minutes of his life like? I, I can't let myself go there. No one should lose their life alone in a bathroom. Alvilar thinks her son and others could still be alive if Denver had a place for drug users to inject under medical supervision. But at the state level, debate over that idea will have to wait for at least another year. I'm John Daly, CPR News. During the Cold War, kids had it drilled into their heads to duck and cover in the case of a nuclear attack. The campaign had a mascot, a turtle named Bert, who knew to quickly retreat to the safety of his shell. So that history is pretty well known. What has gotten much less attention is a program to tattoo school children with what became known as atomic tattoos. Dia Klein of Niwot has been researching this strange chapter because her mother was one of those tattooed. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. So what were these tattoos for? These tattoos were an attempt to mark people, specifically children, with their blood types in case of an atomic attack. If your limbs got blown off, if your (laughs) dog tags got blown off, you would be able to have immediate medical help. So it was a way to keep track of a blood type transfusion to, to aid in an immediate aftermath of an attack. Okay, to identify the blood type and react accordingly. Do you remember the first time you saw your mom's tattoo? Was this an awareness you had as a child? It was. I absolutely remember my mom's tattoo, and it was just normal. She also has a small 
smallpox vaccination scar. And I would ask her, oh, when do I get my tattoo for my blood type? And when do I get my scar? And she would just say, oh, no, those were things that I did. You don't get to have those. And I would ask her about it. And she never really had an answer. I understand that when she was wearing a swimsuit and people would ask her about the tattoo, <laughs> she had a fib that she would tell. Yeah. What, what was that? Yeah. Well, my mom was a bit of a, a tough girl. I think. And she wanted to keep that persona up. And they would ask her, what in the world is that on your side? What does OT mean? And she would say, well, those are my first boyfriend's initials. Otto Turnbull. Otto Turnbull. In fact, it was O positive positive. for her blood. I should mention here that identifying a person's blood type is important because if different types of blood cells are mixed together in transfusions... Those cells tend to clump up. The results can be deadly. So there was a plan to do this tattooing nationwide, but it ended up only being carried out in three locations over less than a year. How did your mother come to be a part of Operation Tat Type? My mom was in the fourth grade, 1951, in Gary, Indiana, and so she was in the Lake County School District, and that is one of the three counties that implemented this stress experimental program. Experimental. There were two other places, I think, in Utah. In Utah, yeah. Okay. Uh, Cash and rich counties in Utah. Your mother is Susan Klein of Santa Fe, and... You call her a victim of Operation Tat Type. She still remembers the terror of standing in line in a school hallway, listening to the screams and cries of children ahead of her as a nurse tattooed them with a multi-needle device called the Vibro Tool. And then it was her turn. I'm O+. Plus, and so she put that at the end of the tattoo gun, swabbed down my left side with some cotton saturated in alcohol, and then put that tattoo gun like mid-rib left side and evidently pulled the trigger. Well, it was horrifying, and it hurt. It was just awful. And I'm sure that I cried bloody murder. I understand it was a physician who came up with this idea. What was his story? Oh, yes. This is a very interesting guy, Dr. Andrew Ivey. And the more that I have looked into the history of the Operation Tat Type, the more I go down the line of Dr. Ivy. He, in the 1940s, was the biggest medical name anywhere. He had all the power. He was the face of physiology. He was just the it guy. And if we want to set the scene, we need to remember mid-40s, white, American, male, educated, doctor. This guy had a God complex, undoubtedly. And he became the force, the driving force for Operation Tat Type. It, it seems uh, a bit obvious that if a child were close enough to a nuclear attack to be, you know, deeply affected by it, that the skin would have just burned off. Yes. I, I, I don't know. There's a there's a kind of illogical quality to this whole thing. Oh, absolutely. Uh, from the beginning to the middle to the end, there, I don't think logic entered the picture. And none of the medical personnel were even educated about where to look for this tattoo in the one year that it was tattooed. So it didn't matter that it was there. No medical professional, even in the local area, would have thought or known to look. Do you have a sense of how this enters the, the doctor's mind to do this? I do. And this is kind of terrifying. 
So I said Dr. Ivy was this big guy, this big doctor. Uh-huh. He was nominated by the uh, AMA to represent uh, America at the Nuremberg trials in 1946. He was elected to go sit on the panel and listen. And one of the things he discovered very quickly as they were putting Nazis on the stand and they were identifying SS officers and people who were complicit in this horror, that they would prove that they were SS officers by asking them to take their shirts off. And lo and behold, on their bicep would be a blood type tattoo. And Dr. Ivy saw this there and put that idea in his pocket as a good thing. This was a way of differentiating SS soldiers from the rest of the German population. And he thought, well, that might be useful in differentiating. Well, I don't know about differentiating, but at least identifying people in the United States. Yes, he he's, he uh, rightly thought this is a good idea for a medical standpoint and then wrongly took a Nazi idea and wanted to implement that. So your mother, as we said, received her tattoo in Gary, Indiana. Yeah. And uh, children were also tattooed at two places in Utah. And th- this is all a bit strange because those communities respectively have big Jewish and Mormon populations, and both of those faiths frown on tattoos. Heavily frown on tattoos. How were Mormons and Jews convinced to overlook those beliefs about tattoos? Well, for the Mormon community, we do know that one of the heads of the church made a statement and said, I grant everyone approval to go get a blood type tattoo. It is okay. But this was a big enough benefit. This was a big enough benefit. We will we will bend the rules and you are allowed to get a blood type tattoo only as long as it's hidden on your left side. Because the benefit presumably to the child's health in the event of a nuclear attack outweighed whatever the religious concerns were. Correct. Your mother has remained traumatized by this experience into her adult life. She is Jewish. And it reminds her of tattooing of Jews by the Nazis. She remembers the heated conversation in her home about the tattoos. My parents and grandparents were sitting at the kitchen table talking about this as Jews and tattoos. There was, we shouldn't let them do this to our children. This is just going back to the horror And then, you know, the other side of the argument, yes, but if something happened, they'd have their blood typed on their left side, back and forth, back and forth. And they finally agreed, yes, in spite of all the history of tattoos, it should be done. Because your grandparents and great-grandparents were told that the tattoos could save children's lives. But a more sinister reason behind this program came to light Uh, that the children would become essentially walking blood banks. Yes. And they they could be used to supply blood to others. Do you think that was true as well? Oh, absolutely. The American Red Cross, they were charged by the AMA to organize our nation's blood supply. And they used the term walking blood banks because blood can only be kept for so long. And we needed to have availability of fresh supply in case of another catastrophe, another war. So do you find a direct link between the tattooing program and that idea of walking blood banks, or is that supposition on your part? Um, I don't necessarily see that direct link. You could link it because they've 
gave everyone dog tags and they gave everyone ID cards. And they really realized that wasn't a great way to really identify blood type. It would be very confusing. Uh So they did decide by Dr. Ivy's suggestion that the tattoo would be the permanent way. I wouldn't be able to hold your card and be confused with your blood type. This did not last long, less than a year. Yeah. Who put the brakes on it? I am not sure. You know, all the information on this program is so sketchy because nobody wanted to talk about it, just really got shuttled away. I think what happened is they really got feedback, pretty immediate feedback from the doctors in the area, basically saying, I would never trust that tattoo. There's an error rate of 10%. Come on. Like, in terms of death. De- determining blood type? Yeah, of having the blood typed incorrectly. So your tattoo is wrong. And then I think people just started perhaps thinking, wow, this experiment is being conducted on children. Perhaps this isn't a really good idea. Do you think it's child abuse? Oh, absolutely. I do. Which is a really interesting topic of debate. There's so many different ideas today that we could debate. Is it child abuse, piercing a child's ear, vaccination, all these things that are currently in our modern time. With hindsight, we can look back and see, wow, you can't tattoo a child. That is child abuse. We can look back and we see we don't let six-year-olds work in factories. We can see that's child abuse. How will that evolve, you're saying? Thank you for being with us. We appreciate your time, Jim. Thank you. Dia Klein of Niwad has been researching the history of Operation Tat Type, a little-known chapter in America's Cold War history, when school children, including her mother, were tattooed to identify their blood types. Be sure and remember what Bert the Turtle just did, friends, because every one of us must remember to do the same thing. That's what this film is all about. Duck and cover. At the start of the show, we told you about a plan for an independent review to look into past allegations of sexual abuse by priests in Colorado. That announcement comes just a day after the diocese in Oakland, California, released the names of 45 clergy members it says are credibly accused of sexually abusing children, dating back to the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. And of course, a former Catholic cardinal has now been defrocked for sexually assaulting a teenager decades ago in New Jersey. 88-year-old Theodore McCarrick is the senior-most Catholic leader to be dismissed from the church in modern times. For Ben Roy of Denver, that defrocking doesn't go far enough. I would be willing to guess, and I'm speaking for myself, that it means absolutely nothing to the thousands of men and women who struggle to get out of bed every day or struggle to stay sober or struggle to maintain personal relationships because of the damage caused by their ineptitude and their negligence and their silence. So I guess my feeling is try harder, Pontiff. You know, try much, much harder. Ben Roy says as a child he was abused by a counselor at a church camp. Let's listen back to our conversation from September. He had just tweeted about how important it is to believe children when they say something happened to them. I asked him to read his tweet. I'm still shocked people believe children did not come forward and alert their parents of abuse by clergy. True, some didn't, but a lot did speak up and their parents did nothing. I spoke up. 
it isn't just children's fears creating this. It's the parents' fears as well. Indeed, Ben Roy tried to tell his parents as best he could what he says happened, but for various reasons they didn't take action. Roy went on to struggle with drugs and alcohol. He spent time in jail. Today, he's sober and stars in a TV show called Those Who Can't. But he is still haunted by his memories of that camp. We asked Ben if he'd come on with his dad, Bob, to talk about the alleged abuse, the silence that followed, and the path to forgiveness. Both men agreed. And welcome. Thanks for having us. Yes, thanks. Ben, tell us more about what sparked your tweet. You know, I I mean, I think it's something that I've been thinking about a lot, Um, you know, as this uh, abuse scandal reignites again. uh, What I read as a common thread throughout all of it is the fact that children didn't come forward or, or the fact that we wish kids had said something before. And that's just not the case. A lot of kids spoke up. I know I said something. And for whatever reason, parents didn't come forward, whether it was out of fear or there wasn't an open dialogue about it. But I feel like the unnecessary burden sometimes is placed on children. I'd like you to share a little of your story, whatever you feel comfortable sharing about what you say happened at this camp in New Hampshire, Camp Fatima in the 1980s. Uh, we should say it's run by the diocese there. Yeah. In 1986, I, um, you know, my parents had sent my brother and I to camp. It was a, a, a Catholic camp. We were um, set to be there for a month. And then your parents would come and visit on the weekends. And I don't really, you know, I mean, I was seven years old. I don't recall at the beginning much anything out of the ordinary. You know, I mean, it was very much a camp experience that I think most people would probably remember. It was kind of bucolic and idyllic. It rested right on a lake. There was lots of, uh, you know, it was in the middle of the woods. It was beautiful. It's a very beautiful camp. But then at some point, the atmosphere kind of started to change. It felt a lot more um, boys clubby. I just remember it being more inappropriate now when I look back, like, you know, being in my underwear in the cabin, which, you know, as an adult, I know if I had heard, you know, that about my child or whatnot. You're a dad. Yeah, Yeah, I'm a father. And then I remember a very vivid instance of abuse um, that had happened. And I remember other children being involved in it. And then there are things that I just don't remember. I remember things starting. For instance, I remember being pulled onto uh, one of the counselor's beds, but I don't remember what happened after that. I don't know. But I remember um, at first enjoying it. And then, you know, when my uh, parents came to visit partway through, I didn't want to stay any longer. And I remember not wanting to be there. That's very distinct in my memory. I also remember not wanting to use the restrooms. I I would go outside the cabin. And I don't even know if that's something that I've ever told you, Dad. You may recall better. I think you guys had taken us to lunch, right, Dad? Uh, Yeah, I I think at that point, you were so intent on coming home that we just said, okay, and I remember feeling a pretty sizable sense of relief. Did you tell your parents at that point why you wanted to go home? No. No. No, and I, I mean, I'm, I'm not entirely sure I had the the understanding. You know, I, I don't know the vocabulary, that yeah. right, yeah. Do you think that the the blurriness of the memory is related to your age? I mean, I'm trying to remember things specifically when I was seven. I think mm-hmm. it's hard to conjure up. Or, or the nature of what happened, or maybe both. 
I think it's both. And the tough part is, is that the particular instance that I recall, and I'll spare graphic details, I don't know that it really matters. But uh, at the hand of a counselor, to be clear, correct. is that right? A camp counselor? Yes. Yeah, that's very vivid. It's seared in my memory, you know. Um, the rest of it is kind of washed in this kind of milky opaqueness. I want to put this into some context. Six people filed suit back in 2002 alleging sexual assaults at this camp. Mm-hmm. The camp director from 1968 to 1990, and that includes the time you were there, died in 02. Uh, I'll say that you weren't a party to those suits. Nope. But they have since been settled. When did it emerge in your family that something untoward had happened at camp? So I was either 10 or 11. We were sitting at the table having a Sunday meal. And truthfully, I don't even remember what we were talking about. And I blurted out jokingly a piece of what had happened. I just said something. Frankly, I don't remember the the details of it. What I do remember is that at the time... We all just looked at each other and then turned to him and said, what are you talking about? And Ben's reaction was, oh, I'm just kidding. And we said, well, Ben, if if anything happened that we should know about, you should tell us. And he said, no, 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 I was just kidding. And we kind of left it at that. Yeah, I, I remember it pretty much exactly like that. I think but whatever you said was pretty literal, it sounds like. It was definitely inappropriate. Like it was enough... <laughs> I don't mean to laugh, but it was enough where everybody, where their reaction to it was what set me on my heels to backtrack. I didn't want to, you know, I felt like it was bad. Like at that, and I think that that's the moment that I realized this isn't right because I saw all their reactions my brother, my mom, and my dad. That is to say that this was brought up. And and what, Bob, quickly dispatched with or to take us into your conversations as parents? Well, I, I think that we were concerned at what he said, but as much as we tried to get any more out of him, uh, he, he just wouldn't talk about it. And we didn't know what to do further. I think that in the way of looking at this uh, with a little bit of context, it's good to understand that Ben's mom and I both grew up in, you know, very devout Catholic families, uh, in predominantly Catholic communities. Uh, We were both sent to Catholic schools and indoctrinated in the teachings of the Church, and they imparted upon us the notion that if you can trust anybody at all uh, with regard to safety and security, it's the Church. And so, you know, I think that, to some extent, may have affected the way we looked at this because, you know, we had sent them to camp really because we wanted them to have a good experience of getting out of the city during the summer and getting to be with other kids their age and and play sports and all of that. And when we selected a church-related camp, we felt, well, uh, you know, here's an institution that uh, we should be able to trust with the care of our children. Certainly, if I were making the same decision today, it would be a lot different. Ben Roy, I, I note that you are tearing up. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, <clears throat> I know that, but I don't know that I've ever really heard that from my father's mouth. Uh, it certainly means a lot. What means a lot in particular? He- hearing that and hearing 
you know, someone contextualize why, you know, they made the decisions uh, that they did. It, uh, it means a lot to me. So, Ben, you think you have found the man you believe to be your abuser. He was a 19-year-old camp counselor then mm-hmm. and had actually attended the camp as a child himself back in the 1970s. According to him, yep. When many of these alleged cases of abuse were said to have taken place. Yeah. We're not naming names here, but tell us how you found him and his response to you. I, I Typical, I think, of most people who you know, experienced some sort of abuse or victimization, daydreamed for years about being able to confront their abuser. And in um, 2014, my wife and I were watching a show about the Vatican and I, and I got in my head, you know, I've never Googled the camp. So I Googled it and all these articles about 2002 had come up. My brother came out later on about a year later and I was still kind of mulling over and still looking here and there. And he's like, you know, I have a yearbook from that time. So he gave me the yearbook, but there was no assignment to their cabin, but one face stuck out. And my wife was sitting there and I was like, this guy looks very familiar. So I found his name on the key and I pulled up people with that name and I messaged about eight or nine of them. With a blanket message, hey, were you a counselor at Camp Fatima in the 80s? And I checked every day, nothing. For a month, nothing. And so I forgot about it because I figured no one's going to respond. And then three months later, I got a response from a guy who said, yeah, I was a camp counselor in 1986 at Camp Fatima. And then he asked me, were you in cabin number one? And that was the cabin I was in. And I said, yeah, I'm in. I was in cabin number one. And he goes, were you there for a month? And I said, I was supposed to be there for a month. And he's like, because I remember a Ben that was supposed to be there for a month. And then I realized, you know, through conversations and through me stringing it out after that and getting him to tell me things about it, like where his bunk placement was and where the other counselor I recall's bunk was, he validated all my memories of it was he the face you had picked out picked out yeah and what did he say did you confront him i tried to string him along more to see how much more he would talk about and then one day i just hit him with it and i said i remember all the dark things and i remember inappropriate behavior and he freaked out he was like i don't know what you're talking about he finally said i'm on the i think he said he was on the side of the road and that he left me his number. And so I picked up the phone and I was ready to to read him the riot act. And when he answered the phone, you know, your monsters never sound like they, you think they're going to sound. They sound like people, you know. And I think that's the worst thing I could have done. The worst thing? Is confronting him, yeah. What What makes you say that? Um... You know, you put a voice in your head to how it's going to be and you think that you're going to hear something nefarious or, you know, a a deep voice or something that sounds creepy. But he just he just sounded like a dude and he sounded scared and he was nervous. And I felt I felt bad for him. And no one ever, you know, I would talk about this when I was in drug counseling. No one ever prepared me. No one told me, you know, when you confront somebody to to be prepared to feel bad for them to feel guilt 
I'll just say that you dealt with uh, addiction in yeah. your life, alcoholism, drugs. Do you think that that's in part an outgrowth of what happened at Kip? Oh, most Adam? certainly. Uh-huh. You know, and I mean, when I would get drunk, my wife was like, your, your catchphrase of drunk Ben should have been, you're not listening to me. I would yell that constantly. I, I would just, you're not, you're not hearing me. You're not listening to me. You know, that's always been my, even if you watch my comedy, you know, I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's all about not feeling like I'm heard and at a volume. So did the, the former counselor, camp counselor ever admit to it? No, he backtracked all his memories. Now, maybe I wasn't your counselor. You know, maybe it was this person. They were defrocked. They ended up becoming a priest and this person was defrocked. All of a sudden, his memory is very foggy. And then finally, I got him to admit that he was the counselor, but he doesn't know who the assistant counselor was at that time. And he later told me he could find out because he still works for Camp Fatima. He is still onboarding new people there. And that's when I, I didn't want to do it anymore. You know what I mean? Like I, the whole thing just made me sick. They haven't changed. They're not going to change. They don't have to change. No one's making them, you know. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guests are Denver comedian Ben Roy and his father Bob. With sexual abuse in the Catholic Church back in the spotlight, they're sharing their family's experience. In 1986, Ben says he was molested by a counselor at a church summer camp in New Hampshire. We reached out to the diocese that runs it for comment. Here's some of their statement. Camp Fatima is strongly committed to keeping children and youth safe and has implemented a number of measures to protect them. All volunteers and employees must undergo background checks and complete training about how to identify and report sexual abuse. Whenever Camp Fatima becomes aware of an allegation, it reports the matter to civil authorities, regardless of when the abuse took place. Camp Fatima prohibits anyone who has been found to have abused a minor from working or volunteering here. The statement encourages Ben to report what happened to law enforcement and to Camp Fatima. They've offered him pastoral care. Ben's reaction to it? Typical canned legal jargon. There's no heart and it doesn't mean anything. The last thing that I want to do is go to any kind of therapy services that are being provided by the same group of people who victimized me. This was in 1986 when he was seven. He raised it obliquely with his parents a few years after, but it wasn't until much later they dealt with it head on. Bob, you said earlier that you would have done things differently if you had to do them over again. Uh, yes. Just expound on that a little bit for me. Well, I mean, uh, I guess as an advice to parents today uh, who might find themselves in a similar situation, if you hear something like that from your child, you, you need to question. You need to ask more questions. You need to not assume that just because the church is involved in this, that there isn't the possibility that something wrong is going on. And actually, based on all of the information that's become public, in recent years, my advice would be if you do suspect that something's been going on, don't go to the church. Go to law enforcement, because there's a difference between a sin and a crime, and the church seems to feel that it's adequately prepared to deal with sins, but it's demonstrated that it's definitely not adequately prepared to deal with crimes. It tends to uh, want to cover up crimes. 
and the public has to step in. You know, I mean, this is a public health crisis now. If you're placing thousands of men and women, and let's not forget that this is women too. Boys, you know, I want to say this, boys get more attention because of the Northeast, you know, Boston and, and Philadelphia's latent homophobia. You know, it's it's disgusting to them. But if you look, women are abused as well by the church and it's not talked about. And I think people have to start demanding answers. They also have to start realizing that if you're releasing thousands of children into adulthood with repressed trauma, that comes at a great cost to public taxpayers. The taxpayers absorb cost of jailing. I've been to jail multiple times. They paid for me to go to rehab. I'm not saying I'm not taking my responsibility out of this, but I think had this not happened, I think how I dealt with things probably would have been a lot different. I've been to the hospital five times when I didn't have insurance because I didn't have money for alcohol-related issues when drinking. If you look at the, the total of that, thousands in every city, this is a pandemic. What is your relationship to the Catholic Church these days, gentlemen? Bob, I, I'll start with you, and then Ben will have you answer that. I have not been involved or associated with any church in many years. Do you think that's a function of what your son experienced? That's part of it. I've experienced other things associated with my relationship with the Catholic Church that demonstrated to me uh, a sense of uh, hypocrisy that was so startling uh, that I said, I, I cannot claim in any way to be a part of this organization. Do you miss it, though? Do you miss the fellowship? Uh, not really, no. Mm. You know, I mean, I think drawing back to the way I grew up, participation in religion wasn't really a choice for us. This was what our parents wanted for us. I'm not sure that I ever truly could consider myself a devout Catholic, and certainly after everything that I've experienced over the years uh, with the Catholic Church, I got to a point where I said, I I'm done with this. I, I can't do this anymore. Ben, for you? No, no. I mean, I haven't been involved. Uh, I'm, you know, but I've come to peace with, you know, my, my mother, who is, is not on the call and not because she didn't want to be. She's obviously much more emotional about this. I think my my dad composes himself very well. And and uh, my mom is is very emotional when she talks about this. And so she was all for me speaking out and letting my father speak. And, um, but my mother is still devout, but has also expressed to me an, ex an extreme discontent and dissatisfaction with the way that the Catholic Church is handling things and her frustration with it. I don't. Um, and, I, you know, you have no connection to the church today. No, mm -hmm. no. I mean, I don't know what I believe in, you know, I want to believe in something, you know, but I don't, I know it's not done like this. I, I wouldn't ask anyone uh, this question except a, a comedian, which is, would you ever laugh about this? Would, would this ever be fodder for the act? Yeah, maybe. You know, yeah. I mean, I, I'm still Adam Caton Holland, my good friend and co-star. He said, I think you're still learning how to tell the story. And I think that that's a big thing. I'm still learning how to talk about it and to tell the story and what parts I want to talk about. And I think once I figure, figure that out, I do want to say this, that like, I've also come to a lot of, um, the terms with my parents, you know, I mean, uh, I, I don't feel animosity towards them. I understand that at that time there wasn't a word for it. 
There was, it wasn't talked about. So you're in a place, what, do I hear a forgiveness? Oh, totally. Okay. And uh, understanding. Now we know that's how kids broach subjects. They joke about it. They test the waters, you know. And I would say that to parents out there. You, you have to hear what they're saying now and dig and pull because the damage that I faced, I'm, I'm fortunate. I could have experienced years of like, like other people have years of abuse. Right. Exactly. And I think now I look at it and I see that probably a lot of the damage came from feeling like I wasn't heard or protected. And I know a hundred percent, my dad is here. You know how much guts this takes for Amanda sit, you know, I'm, I can't, uh, express how much this means. Cause if I was a dad and who loves his kid as much as I know my parents love me and knowing that I made a decision that may have impacted or impacted somebody negatively that I care about, it would be very difficult for me to, to stand and speak about it. You know, when Ben and I talked about this, I told him, you know, he said this would mean a lot to me. And I said, well, you mean a lot to me. And so, yes, I will do this. You know, there was no, no doubt in my mind that I was going to do it. You know, myself and Ben's mom have both gone through a lot of agony over this because the last thing you want to see is your children in pain. And it's hard to think that maybe the cause of that pain was something you failed to do. So certainly, you know, it, it hurts us a lot to know that. But on the other hand, we're really glad that we've been able to maintain the level of communication that we've had all along. And, you know, as a parent, for me, uh, my greatest joy in life is knowing what great people my sons are, both of them. I'm very proud of my kids, and, and it's not for what they've done in life. It's for who they've become. Thanks, Dad. Thank you to, to both of you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. We spoke with Ben Roy and his father, Bob, back in September. Since our conversation, Roy has been in contact with a lawyer about the possibility of pursuing a case. We'll keep you updated. Thanks for spending time with us. You can follow this show on Twitter at Colorado Matters. I'm at CPR Warner. This is CPR News.